This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand on the air. Tenako to Katoa, ko Jen Olsen Tokuingua. Welcome everyone, my name's Jen Olsen. This is the Environment Awareness Show brought to you by Extinction Rebellion Otapoti. And we're back for a new series of 10 fortnightly programmes, and this is the second one, um, with interviews, opinions and discussions about the environment, the climate crisis and all sorts of related topics. We're going out on Tuesday at 1pm with a replay on Saturday at 11. Um, You might be listening to our podcasts and uh, anyone can find our podcasts going to the Environment Awareness Show on the Otago Access Radio podcast page. And uh, please send us your comments and suggestions to our email address, dunedin at extinctionrebellion.nz and we really appreciate your feedback. Today, we're continuing our ongoing discussion about decolonisation. That's within society at large and within our movement, the Movement for Climate Justice. We want action on the climate and ecological crisis, and we know this will need big changes within society. We need to recognise the causes of injustices within society and address those as well, um, because we don't want people who are already marginalised or disadvantaged to bear the worst effects of the climate crisis. Mm. Um, And this is already happening in some parts of the world. So now my guest today is Suzanne Menzies-Culling. Suzanne, kia ora, Suzanne. Suzanne is a long-time activist for social justice who presents an education programme on decolonisation. And uh, a group of Extinction Rebellion rebels took part in a workshop a couple of weeks ago and we found it really interesting and thought-provoking. So thanks for coming with us, coming to talk to us today. Oh, you're welcome, Jean. Um, now, I know you were working with Green MP Materia Ture a few uh-huh. years ago and, and you're well aware of environmental issues. Yes. And... Um, I wonder if you could tell us a bit about what brought you now to focus on decolonisation. Well, I actually came to climate change and environmental issues later than I came to the Treaty of Waitangi. Um, and uh, I was involved right from the early 80s in doing Treaty of Waitangi stuff, I guess. Um, Ten years passed, 1990, and... We started to wonder why a lot of education had happened, but nothing had really changed. Uh, there were a few government things that had you know, tweaked around the edges, but by and large, um, mainstream New Zealand had been to workshops, had been very affected by them, but were paralysed. And so <clears throat> we started looking at the impact on our people of that journey that they had taken in the 19th century from the, from the UK out here, which was basically... Um, to be sort of dramatic, um, a form of exile, because we actually recognised that the people who came to settle in places like New Zealand were people that were surplus to requirements in Britain. Mm. They, we couldn't be fed, we couldn't be housed, we couldn't be um, employed. Many people living in the slums were being cleared off the highlands and lowlands by the landowners, or they'd been starved out by the landowners in Ireland. So all these sort of things, uh, I guess we started thinking it it had led to people feeling um, threatened. And when it came to looking 
at justice here in Aotearoa, what Māori had lost, people couldn't move because they were fear they feared losses as well, um, and we believed that the loss they were expected to consider was going to be on top of other losses they'd never acknowledged. So that's really why the treaty stuff turned into a decolonisation framework because we started looking at the global picture of what had happened to settlers and, and their descendants. Yeah. I mean, I, I hadn't really looked at it that way myself, you know, mm. and, it, and in, in some ways it helped me to really identify even more with the losses that I know have taking place here. <coughs> because often often we have been played off against each other in terms of Pākehā and Māori. You know, it's, mm. it's always suited people like the politicians and the media to have us thinking of each other as the enemy. Um, and I'm not to say that, that um, settlers haven't caused a lot of damage as has the process of colonisation. But for Pākehā, we need to understand Māori are not our enemy. You know, we have a common enemy, but that's not each other. Oh, right. Now, it's interesting, you you were saying that you came to the climate um, action via, I mean, treaty justice, really. Mm, um, mm. And I, I'm a bit like that myself. I came to it through a social justice kind of thing, you know, yeah, supporting the workers, being involved in trade unionism and mm. um, realising that um, the capitalist system is the cause of both the, the uh, colonisation, yes. the effects of colonisation and the, the damage to the environment. Yeah, well it was interesting because um, I went to a lecture last well, last week I think, the Polynesian Panthers were in town and they just articulated it really well, they called it the three C's colonisation, Christianity and capitalism and that's the thing that has created the most havoc mm. in the world. Yeah, well, we have a, a Māori caucus within Extinction Rebellion called Te Waka Haurua, mm -hmm. um, and they've clearly identified the link between colonisation and the climate crisis, oh, and, yes. and it is capitalism. Absolutely. Um, but they've been very generous in the, in the way that they're um, sharing just their viewpoint and their different kind of knowledge and the way of, of looking at the world you know, yeah. with us. and it's, it, it's um, a great privilege to be sitting in the room and to be part of those kind of discussions, yeah. you know, and um, I was at a Green Party gathering earlier this year and, um, and one of the things that was said really clearly is we have to be talking to Māori because mm. we don't know what to do. Wow. We don't know what to do. If we don't talk to Māori, we'll still be in the dark. You know? And we have to be prepared to listen as well Absolutely. and actually take on board. And that's yep. that's not an easy thing for a lot of people. Well, it's not even easy to admit, usually, no. you know, because we're supposed to know everything. Because, you know, well, yeah. there's a thing called the rightness of whiteness. <laughs> we're supposed to know everything. <laughs> no, I think it's really hard for a lot of people to accept the level of injustice that has taken place mm. against Māori in New Zealand. Mm. Um, and, I mean, part of your workshop really sort of brought that home to us, going through a timeline of um, things that had happened since the treaty was signed mm. and how, I mean, I did know this already, <coughs> but, you know, it really brought it home, like how almost immediately um, yeah. the government and the settlers started taking actions that were quite contrary to... And very the, deliberate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And even down to, yes, declaring the treaty a nullity mm. in law mm. quite quickly. And also saying that Māori only had rights if they were given by Parliament. Yeah. You know, that sort of stuff. So, I mean, 
thinking about how to how to support people along that journey yes. of, of recognizing that we we all need to work together mm. towards a better kind of society. <clears throat> I think we we can't deny people's pain. We shouldn't be denying Māori pain for for starters, but even um, our own. You know, we need to actually take that seriously and have a good cry and get over it. Mm. That's what I, you know, it's not just to not make out it didn't happen and it's not real and it's not potent. Mm. Because if that's the thing that stops us moving, then it's really destructive and, and impediment. So you know, we have to look at it, take it seriously. I feel so much aroha for my ancestors. Mm. I don't know if they were involved in terrible things. I don't think they were, but they may have been. But just to think of the courage it would have taken to make those choices to leave and know you'd never go back and you'd never see anybody again you know it was very mm. final leaving britain and coming to the south pacific you, you know there was yeah. no turning back and so um you know i just really have heaps of aroha for them and um i know that some people who don't want the treaty being talked about they they see it as us disrespecting our ancestors and you know all that sort of stuff Mm. You know, and I don't think that's the point at all. I think the point is for us to know who we are and to feel comfortable with um, with what we learn and have a cry and get over it. Wow. it's That's another parallel, really, between this... Um, between thinking about decolonisation and thinking about the climate crisis. Mm -hmm. Because that's another thing that for some people is so difficult and so paralysing yeah. to think about yeah. that they really just can't face it at all, mm. you know, and they just know it's too big and they just want to carry on with their daily lives. Yes. And, and, and facing up to that kind of grief of that knowledge of the damage that we've done to the natural world mm. and some of it that we can't recover yeah. You know, creatures yeah. that have already been made extinct and that are heading for extinction now that we're not going to be able to mm. stop. And and also, I think some people, like I've got them in my family, some of my siblings like this, the male ones, um, is that, that the, oh, the Earth is huge and the, the solar system is huge and people are too puny to actually do it any real damage, you know, this no. is just a myth. And people comfort themselves with that. But, I mean, yeah. the evidence, the science is in and it's inescapable. Yes, yeah, it is. Mm. I mean, there, there is no argument about it now. And I think it's, once you yeah. have children and grandchildren, I don't know how people can turn their backs and say, no. like, we don't have to do anything, you know, the earth will sort itself out. I don't no. know how that happens. No, I, I just think, again, I just think it's something that's too big mm. for them. You know, I mean, it's it's like there are people in New Zealand who are saying, oh, oh, well, look, we've all, we're all equal opportunities now in New Zealand. You know, there's no need to think about Māori's rights or because they've Māori got health. I mean, yeah, <laughs> but, I mean, the science and the statistics tell us otherwise. Yes. Māori are very poorly represented mm. in health statistics. The services don't meet their needs. Mm. You know, and there's no arguing about that. Like, I work in health myself. Mm -hmm. And it's something that we struggle with, you know, is trying to make our services accessible and appropriate yes. for Māori people to be able to feel that they can participate. You know, I think one of the things is that as Parker... Not, and this isn't for everybody, but for people who are just ordinary people, I think we need to acknowledge that the system doesn't work for anybody. 
Mm. You know, I mean, for the 1% or the 1% of the 1%, yes, it works for them. But, you know, if you just look around, it actually doesn't work for anyone. You know, I saw a woman yesterday talking about living up in the north, in Northland, and that you know, it takes people in over an hour to get to the doctor, and then they mm. don't go because then they can't afford the prescriptions anyway. Um, and that is quite a foreign thing for most middle-class New Zealanders to have to admit. They'd never worry about paying $5 a prescription um, but when you've got lots of kids and you know there's a bit of sickness around you're paying a lot more than $5 you're you know, buying mm-hmm. lots of medicine and so this whole thing of free and accessible health care is, is huge mm-hmm. but most middle class New Zealanders don't find that it's an issue no. and, so they're, and they're the ones who vote Wow, you know, yeah. and they're also the ones who who don't believe in climate change. Some of them, <laughs> yeah, those are the people we need to reach, aren't they? Uh, yes, yeah. yes. I don't know how that happens. Well, let's have mm. a little think about that. Now, mm. you, you brought along um, an idea of a piece of music today for us, Suzanne. Can you it's, tell us a bit about um, that? It's a song by um, an African-American women's a cappella group. They're called Sweet Honey in the Rock, and I've loved them since the 80s. And they have this beautiful song um, called We Are, and it just talks about um, all, all of us who are born, each child that's born, we are... Um, I suppose we carry the the wisdom and the hopes and dreams of our ancestors from time immemorial. And it also reminds us that we stand on the shoulders of others, that it's not all up to us. You know, we're just building on what's, ha- what's happened before. And, um, yeah, mm-hmm. so I think it really actually matches what, what Extinction Rebellion uh, is trying to do and the kind of philosophy behind it. So. Oh, great. Thank you. Well, let's listen to that one. For each child that's born, a morning star rises and sings to the universe who we are. For each child that's born, a morning star rises and sings to the universe who we are. For each child that's born, a morning star rises and sings to the universe who we are. We we are our We 
was lovely so uh welcome back to uh the climate the environment awareness show with extinction rebellion i'm talking here with suzanne menzies culling and um, we're talking about decolonization and i had this question i really wanted uh, to talk to you about suzanne and and that is just that in the climate movement there are people who feel that the issue of climate change is so urgent that we really need to focus on that first and foremost and that mm-hmm. looking at decolonization as an issue um is taking time where we should be actually working on the climate mm-hmm. and yeah, how would you respond to that? <clears throat> well, it reminds me of the peace movement because they used to say, if we can ban the bomb, then we can deal with racism. And, and uh, they were told at a conference in the Pacific, the Pacific had its, has already had its nuclear bomb. It was called colonisation. And that shocked the white peace movement. The thing for me is that... Um, Everybody is really concerned about the climate, not just white people or you know wealthy European countries. Um, indigenous people have been worried about the climate and the environment for for millions of years. And there's a Hopi prophecy that talks about how each group of people were only given one portion of knowledge of how to live, how to live in harmony and how to heal. And so if we don't start talking to Indigenous people, we've got no chance of solving the climate crisis. Because on our own, we don't have the answers. We don't even half the time understand the questions. And so if we're going to solve the climate crisis, we have to be humble enough to listen to the wisdom of other peoples. That's my answer. Oh. Yeah, because we don't so have the wisdom. We have we have what we know, but we don't know what we don't know, and we've got to actually be humble and start to listen. Yeah, not we don't know what we don't know. No, exactly. No. So it's not just yeah. about restoring Māori Tinoranga Tiratang, which of course it would be doing, mm. but it's actually also unleashing a whole lot of information that may save the planet. Well, and it's it's being able to work side by side with people, yeah. listening to them, and yeah, being humble enough to admit that. We don't know all the answers. In fact, mm. we've made a big hash of it. Absolutely. You know, yes, there's been some advantages and, you know, we all appreciate the modern mm. medicine and everything that goes yeah. with it. But there's many, many things that have been a big mistake. Well, you, you were talking about capitalism before. Yeah. And one of the, the things that the first lot of settlers talked about and the New Zealand company and these, all these people was that we have to destroy this beastly communism. That's what they called Māori's communal way of living, sharing and not being profit-based and actually having the people at the centre of all your decision-making. 
and having a thing called mana ato, which is your spiritual side, which gives you the f- philosophical underpinning of how you live together as people and look after the earth. And we don't have that. We have mm-hmm. this, let's go to church, if we go to church, and then we'll just do whatever rapacious things we need in the yeah. capitalist oh. world to get ahead. Gosh, yes, we could learn a lot, couldn't we? Yeah. I mean, I, I see it as a social justice issue myself. Yeah. You know, if we don't um, if we don't fight for a better world, what do we want to save the planet for? And we well, we wh- don't want to save it for the oppression that is yeah. happening now. And do we really know what a better world looks like? Well, no, that vision of something better. Yeah. I mean, that's something that I think more and more we're thinking in the climate movement that we need is to be able to project to people that vision of a better world. Mm. Um, not We've had enough of the doom saying of mm. telling people how bad things are, but we want to turn them now to thinking, well, mm. something better to look towards, to work towards, yeah, to so imagine. If we're not yeah. going to recreate the same inequities in a new world, then we have to have a lot of other people having input. Yeah, yeah, mm. that's not right. Just us. And um, I think having that... Um, that ability to to be humble and listen to others that's something that we're not noted Good for it. really <laughs> putting it mildly <laughs> i mean I, i've always been amazed at how generous mari are oh, in terms of yeah working of, of not holding a grudge and kind mm. of making us feel bad about it you know mm. i think that's what a lot of parkia are afraid of is that they're going to turn around to us and like tick us off and say you know you did this you did that but i i've never experienced that no, and no. i i don't think it, that's our mentality to do that mm. that's what what we would do yes that's right and we think that we're going to actually be treated the same as way as we've treated yeah. other people but you know it's it, the thing i think for people for parkia especially to, to understand we're not guilty for what's happened in the past, but we are responsible. Right. Because we've reaped the benefits. Yes. And so, therefore, we're responsible for actually yeah. making the changes that need to happen. I mean, that's what drives people in the climate movement, mm. I think. It's that feeling of responsibility, yeah. of wanting to do something for future generations yeah. and wanting to actually... I mean, a lot of us did you know we've been driving cars and doing all these things for many years without really thinking of the consequences mm. and now right no it's got to stop well, you've got to do something it, about what, it what really shocks me is how i think we we were more conscious of it in the 70s than we are now you know mm. i it blows me away that you see these huge cars driving yes, around yes in the 70s we knew you had to get little cars because we couldn't afford the petrol yeah and now right. we've got huge cars with one person mm. it's just distressing to put it mildly yeah well let's focus on the positives we will work towards this vision of a better future together yes we will yeah thank you so much for talking to me today it's been lovely thank you okay so this is goodbye from me from Extinction Rebellion Environment Awareness and we'll see you again in a fortnight This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.